0: My name is Monica Kleberman, and you're listening to Silence On Set Podcast. On today's podcast, we're talking to more cast members from the marvelous Miss Maisel. The show starts in the late 1950s and Miriam Midge Maisel has everything she's ever wanted. The perfect husband, two kids, and an elegant apartment on New York's Upper West Side. Her seemingly perfect life takes a surprising turn when she discovers a hidden talent she didn't previously know she had stand-up comedy. This revelation changes her life forever as she begins a journey that takes her from her comfortable life on the Upper West Side through to cafes, nightclubs, and all over downtown New York City as she makes her way through the city's comedy industry on a path that could ultimately lead to her spot on the Tonight Show couch. So as we say goodbye to our beloved characters, we had to catch up with two in particular. So first up is Joel Johnson, who plays Archie Cleary, to talk about his experience being on the show. And And what it was like filming on that very last day. So here is Joel Johnstone. So I want to start off first of all with Archie. I love Archie. Archie is such a good friend. I mean, he does everything above and beyond. I mean, for Joel, he's always there for everything. And there's so many things that I want to talk about in particular of scenes that you do. But I want to start off with originally. So way back when seven years ago, it's five seasons, but it's been seven years with all the kind of breaks and COVID when you got the script and you read, okay, this is Archie. I'm him. I could do this. This is what I want to, you know, and you go in and you get the role. How has Archie changed from day one to the last episode of the show? It's
1: a great question. Well, I definitely smoked more in season one. I will tell you that right off the bat. And that was both intentional and unintentional. Just the bar, like most of my scenes since season three have been in the button club, which is already the smokiest environment you've ever been in in your life. No need to add smoke to that, but also it's the continuity. Really, really hard to match. Also, you know, when you're doing that on camera, like because they're not real cigarettes, they're the catnip or whatever the hell it is, the herbal stuff. They're like little pieces get in your mouth, and you're like, you can't stumble through words on this show like you can in other ones are go, I'm just gonna take that back. You can't do it. So for one, is it's just hell. So definitely more of a smoker. Archie cleaned up his health a little bit smoke-wise. Archie's very consistent, I think, and, and not by my design, just by the writing. He's this this non-judgmental friend from the get-go. That's this incredibly loyal. I will be there for you no matter what ultimate wingman um which i love because how many of your friends don't judge you even when you do something really shitty i don't think we have a lot of those friends archie's one of them and those are the best of friends those are the ones that last
0: and no and i agree with you because and you know no offense to michael i mean obviously he's playing joel but joel does some shitty things i mean we start off with the first episode and that's kind of like the catalyst and michael was saying you know it was funny because everyone was trying to take various reasonings for why like the show happened or why like midge ultimately becomes a comedian so it was very funny that everyone had their reasons as to why their character was like the catalyst but Michael was like but mine was really the catalyst because it was like the first episode and he's like and I cheated on her and that's really what kind of started the whole
1: she doesn't go to the gaslight if he hadn't cheated
0: right and so we were kind of like joking about that and I said everyone's trying to fight you for that spot but he was like no like I swear but that's because of me I'm on I'm
1: on team Joel all the way I agree with Michael on
0: that it's very valid because nothing would have happened I think without him but what I find interesting is I like that you mentioned about the non-judgmental thing because all of the stuff that Joel does and the decisions that he makes over a period of time are not necessarily the smartest decisions and sometimes they leaned a little bit on Archie where I got like nervous because I was like oh no like are you gonna like start making bad decisions <laughs> or you know like because he sees this guy that's like single and out in town and hooking up with all these girls and like doing you know various things but instead what really shined throughout the seasons was the friendship between. The the yeah. two of them and was the fact that there was like you said no judgment and it was all how can we help each other and a lot of times I think they show like on television shows that men usually support men right but what they don't show on TV shows what they show on this show is a lot of times on this show men are supporting women and when Joel supports Midge Archie supports Joel and supports Midge what was those scenes like whenever you know specifically I guess we could talk about like with the button club when there's scenes where she comes in and she Kind of takes over the stage and chaos is ensuing and Archie's running around. He never goes no no no, no she shouldn't be up there. He never says no, no no like a woman shouldn't be doing comedy. There's none of that. It's all supportive and it's all supporting a woman. And whether or not that's because he's friends with Joel or because that's what Archie believes, it still comes across as Archie supporting a woman in a time period where that wasn't common and in a time period where right now unfortunately doesn't seem that common. So for you, how does that feel playing a character that? That is so strong in those convictions and so open to support a woman that's a comedian.
1: I made a choice kind of from the pilot that <laughs> if you're paying attention to Archie, I hope resonates somewhere along five six, but just that, that I admire the hell out of Mitch. And that I think there's an element of this character that for me is my father, who was the most artistic soul I've ever met, but buried himself in the business world. But I think if he were here and if you were being honest, he would say, I wanted to be some sort of I think he wanted to be a right. And, you know, just especially in the 1950s, men didn't do that. I'm speaking in the most broad terms, but men just, you know, they, they went into business, they put on the suit, they, you know, and it was a very patriarchal expectation. And I think he fell into that trap, but in the pilot, when I'm in the gaslight, I, I say a few things, very fast lines, but just really loving About this. And Amy kind of, I never talked to Amy about this, but she just sprinkled in like we go into the music shop where he hears the recording in season one. And I pick up a like ukulele. I'm like, hey, okay, maybe we should do, maybe we should be in a band. And I love that he is moonlighting as a comedian in the pilot. And I keep saying, Joel Basil, king of comedy, what about that? And I, I think I love the idea of diving into the arts. But for Archie, that was just too scary. So I'm going to bury myself in the business, but I'm really going to live vicariously through anybody who does take that plunge. Midge is the only one that actually does it. And I've always made the choice that when she's on set, I have nothing but admiration and respect for that. Even though I feel torn, this is my best friend's ex, obviously there's tension there, but man, I wish I were you in some alternative universe.
0: And then, you know, it's very interesting too because I was talking about how a lot of times when there's two characters that are married and get divorced, you kind of never know know where the families are going to go right you never know if you're going to see both sets of parents you don't know if you're going to see the friends that's real life
1: they have some friends who divorce and it's like you always pick sides it's really awkward
0: I know it's like super awkward you don't know what to do and it was interesting because Kevin and Caroline said you know that they thought it was so nice that it was so different that not only did Joel and Mitch not give up on each other but that the families didn't give up on one another either and that included their friends for Archie he never is like aggressive towards her he's never mad at her and it kind of fits what you're saying which was like admiration for her but he's like supportive of her all the time and then there's a couple of lines that you say over the years which is like are you sure like you want to be with this girl like maybe you want to go back to be with her like you know and there's a lot of like pushing because you really do kind of support her in the things that she's doing so was it fun for you to have the family entities kind of stay together you know with one family being a little more like scientifically and quiet and one family being were a little loud and outgoing, but the comedy of all of it, of them kind of crossing over, but having that family stay together and be together for all five seasons and to have Archie as a best friend be there for all five seasons.
1: You know, through, throughout the five seasons, seasons, I also got it's a dream to work with every person on this set. But Marn and Tony are not necessarily my storyline. And I got to be with them when I was with Imogene for her baby shower. And I got to be with Kevin and Caroline when they're with Joel. I mean, it was a dream to work with all of them. So yes, I'm glad that I was torn between those two. And I also, you know, I forgot to mention as well, I have to um, also walk the tightrope of not rubbing my wife the wrong way because I think Imogene does definitely judge Joel. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like a whole other thing and uh, I mean I could go on and on about how fun Bailey is as well
0: I just love Imogene she's so cute I love her to death like she's so adorable I love how she like just the comments she makes and the little digs but like the nice way of saying it and I, I just love everything about her but yeah I would say pretty fair she judges joel i don't think she's the hugest fan but i think she's (laughs) civil because women were civil then and i think she's civil because of midge and i think that's kind of how they make that work i love the two of you i mean together too it's just pure comedy some of my favorite scenes though happen i mean like over the course i would literally sit for two hours and pick out scenes because i'm crazy and pick out scenes of different you know seasons of you because i mean there's so many good ones that you do but one of my all-time favorites i think ever And I think it says a lot about you as an actor and about the show was this season when Joel's parents come to the button club and kind of causing, (laughs) I like your reaction, are kind of causing like a ruckus and, and you come in. I have never seen somebody walk around a room as fast as you did, talking as fast as you did. And then going into the back and be like, I need you. I need you to come out. We have a problem. And then and like, and Joel's like, listen, I'm on the phone. What? I'm busy. And you're like, no, no, no you need to see this. And like, and then he comes out and the two of you race around this room a mile a minute, which is like how the show goes, but it's very impressive to see like the one shot of the camera following you guys literally going from table to table to table to table and the pure panic on your character's face of thinking like the club is over. We're going to have old people and we're going to have like parents coming in and like they're going to be playing bridge. And so I laughed so hard in that scene. So I wanted to ask you, filming that I can only imagine how many pages that was but filming that and getting that down how do that because you hit every single funny moment every spot where you're supposed to be like and I know there's a million people involved and I know it's a lot of writing and things like that but there's a lot of, of acting you that makes that happen and to watch you I mean like and like I said the sheer panic I was panicking for you like I'm like literally I'm like fighting my nails I'm going oh my gosh I feel terrible for him and he's always trying to fix things you know so and he's just like right Around so, what was it like for you as an actor to do that scene, prep for it, and then actually film it? Literally not. I mean, like you're like nonstop. I was watching it very closely. It was relatively a one shot. I think they do like one quick cutaway to like show like a close up, but like it looked like it was done. Which you guys are famous for these one shot kind of thing
1: Actually, in the Button Club, I mean, I think I can count the number of Button Club scenes on one hand that that we used coverage because so many of them that I filmed in the Button Club were wonders
0: How do you do that?
1: Rehearsal, rehearsal. I, I have actor friends ask me all, that all the time because they, they get anxiety while knowing like what that, but it's such a well-oiled machine right now led by Amy and Dan that we know the assignment before we get there. And th- the mornings are always terrifying because you get there and you realize, oh my God, I got to do this, I got to do that, that, the other thing. But everyone, every department is so on top of it that, you know, it might be 10 o'clock, we haven't shot a thing yet. And so it seems like we're behind, but by 11 o'clock, once we've rehearsed this seven or eight times. It's fluid. It really is a lesson in measure twice, cut once. And then you start recording and you're ahead before lunch because you've rehearsed it so much. And if you really are going with a oneer, you're not waiting around for coverage. It's not just artistically brilliant, it's economical as well. But in terms specifically of that scene, I laughed out loud when I read it and I laughed even harder in between takes because Kevin and Caroline, I couldn't, there were jokes that I didn't even see on the page that they hit or came up with something. They're both just such geniuses and watching them and getting just to be a fly on the wall in that scene was one of the biggest treats of season 5 for me
0: I was actually when I was watching it I was trying to watch you and Michael's face but they lit it so dark because I was like they have to be laughing that because it was oh. like so funny but the way that they lit it you couldn't see anything so if you guys were la- like caught laughing on camera we didn't see it sure. but it was just hilarious so I'm like how did they get through this scene I mean it was just such a good scene it was just so smart and so well done it also reminded me of the scene even when you guys First, decided to do the button club, and you find that door, and you're like, Where does this <laughs> door lead? Right? And like, you head down there. And of course, only poor Archangel would find a place that has like this whole underground thing going on. What was so funny is neither of you come upstairs and go, We need to go. Both of you were just like, We're just not going to go back down there. Like, we're just going to keep this door shut. Right? right. That's we're, right. we right. just going to forget There's this. Happening.
1: It. No questions. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: And those scenes happen all the time between you two. I wanted to know what was one of the funnest scenes for you? as an actor and then as playing Archie with Michael slash Joel?
1: The baseball scene. Mainly because I am a huge baseball nut. I would give it all up in a heartbeat if somebody handed me a baseball contract. That's my childhood dream was to be, you know, a baseball player. I grew up playing baseball. And I remember Amy asked me like a month before that we were going to start filming that scene. She said, hey, if I write a scene where you are playing baseball, can you do that? I thought somebody had told her what an obsessive fanatic person I am about baseball. So I thought she was messing with me. And I was like, yeah. Like, and, and she was, no, seriously, I was like, Amy, that would be the greatest gift you ever gave me if we were playing baseball in a scene. Well, are you kidding? Like, yes. And then Michael and I did it at the table. <laughs> we made a beeline for the second AD after we were like, we have to rehearse this. Like, we can you get us a batting cage? And they did. It was, so we went to a batting cage the day before for several hours and just did the lines, did the lines with, so, so everyone keeps asking us, like, was it hard to hit the balls? And like, hitting the balls is the least of our worries when we actually got there. And that was the very, 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 very final scene of season two. It was two in the morning at a park up in Harlem where we were filming that. It was, I think, 3 a.m., just shy of 3 a.m., and they they set a table up with champagne on it as we were doing the last take. And they yelled, cut, and that was a wrap on season two.
0: See, and this is so funny. This is how my brain goes. When I watched that scene, I I was just going the whole time, I wonder who's going to pick up all the balls because, like, (laughs) there were so many flying. So I didn't even think about that. Like, was it difficult to hit? them. I was just going, like, logically, if I was doing that with my friend, there's, like, hundreds of them, like, yeah. out on the field. Who's cleaning all of them? It
1: was such a dance with our brilliant, brilliant camera op, Jim McConkey, who is just, our camera department is second to none, and Jim McConkey was doing the cameras that day, and he, he does so many of the wonders. and they had to put a plexiglass shield in front of him, otherwise we were going to kill him, because we don't know where the balls are going to go, and then we realized even the balls are hitting that thing way too hard, so when the one came in front of us when he was directly in front of us, there were two buckets. The bucket on the left were Nerf balls. The bucket on the right were hard balls. And we tried to use the hard balls as much as possible. But like, but when Jim is in front of you, use the Nerf balls. So for no reason, if you watch it, sometimes we're reaching the left one, sometimes we're reaching to the right one. If you pay attention, left is the Nerf. Those were the hard parts, not the hitting the balls. The hitting the balls were you know were just lobbing you there and 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 hitting you know. But like trying to remember, okay, he's in front of us. Eight billion things at once. Not to mention all of the lines, but once we got it, it was the most fun I've ever had.
0: Now that you're, you're like, saying that out loud, like, the amount of stuff to have to memorize, yeah, and, like, as you see him moving, you're like, okay, reach from the other bucket, okay, he passed us, reach the other bucket, hit this, move that, stay in my line, look at him, like, yeah, so I could see that being a little difficult. You gotta
1: gotta spin a lot of plates on this show, but I, every day, welcome the challenge, and it was the most rewarding work I've ever done.
0: So, as we head into, you know, season five, and we talked a little bit about, you know, the button club, one of my favorite scenes of with you, which was hard because there's so many. When we head into season five, I wanted to know, first of all, did you know heading into season five, they were going to like kind of wrap things up? Were you kind of mentally prepared? This is going to be our final season? Uh, yes,
1: yes. We were told before I before I began filming, it was always like we were all aware that this was the farewell tour and soaking up every last minute. I mean, I as sad as it is, I don't feel like I missed anything. Like we, we all grab on to as much as we could, moment to moment, that entire season. I think we all fully appreciate
0: it. Well, I want to also talk about, you know, with this show, obviously, this cast is incredible. And a lot of the cast has been together since the beginning. But looking back on seven years of your life, five seasons of the show, is there a specific moment that sticks out to you where you're like, "That was amazing," but then also a moment that you're just like, "I wish I was in it a little more because I'm gonna miss it so much."
1: I mean, the the, the very final scene. Well, it's not final, final, but 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 her becoming Mrs. Maisel on the Gordon Ford show. That was that was a long week. We were all there, all five days. It was a gigantic. 16. and it was long but I would say we bonded in a way I hadn't at least I mean I was not around as obviously as much as Michael and the rest of them but I bonded with everybody there in, in, a, in a way I hadn't because they were they 12-13 were hour days every single day and we're there and getting to watch Rachel just the monologue was like two different days just getting to watch her work and kind of getting everybody's <laughs> it was therapy for all of us and just hearing everybody just emote about how much we're going to miss this and finding the comfort in everybody Everybody's misery of having to leave was cathartic. And so I kind of, even though that was a long week, wish that could go on and on. Because so rarely were all of us in the same room. There's so many storylines on this show, especially, you know, most of my days were Michael and I. But getting the whole gang together like that, and getting to bond in that way was irreplaceable to me. And I will hang out of that forever.
0: So to talk about that team. I had brought that up with everybody that this was one of the first times that, you know, if some people were not on Midge's side, her parents um, in terms of doing comedy and things like that, this was the first time where I, so first of all, I'll back up a little bit when she finds out she's going to be on the show I started crying my natural reaction was just crying because I was so happy like you know that this was happening for her and although we see flash forwards and we know she becomes and I was kind of comparing her to like a Lucille Ball like legend like kind of becomes a big legend you know you're seeing pieces of it and some of it I was confused because I'm going oh she's not really talking to her kids like that's kind of sad and she's flying in helicopters and like there's things that I was like "Mm, that doesn't seem like her but then Amy and Dan have such a great way of making it make sense so it makes sense after she does that and the stuff that we see after the fact, but to go to that scene in particular when she's on the she's gonna find out she's gonna be on the show, I start crying. And then they bring all of you guys, and it was the first time her parents, which I felt like that would have been my parents have always like you know they're my parents, so they've always been like relatively like proud. But I can't imagine what that would feel like, and to see parents that maybe were proud of you secretly but weren't really open about it, running down the street trying to catch a cab, paying, doing anything to get there. You have Joel, who is your ex who has supported you, goes to prison for you. I mean, like, because he loves her so much and wants to protect her so much, show up. And then his parents show up. And then good old Archie, like, always there. Like, for his friend, he shows up. And Imogene's there. So when I saw all of you in the audience, and you're all there, and you're all on point of your character. So, like, you're late. Like, you're there, and Imogene's late. And she's like, excuse me, excuse me, I'm married. Like, move over. And, like, you know, and she sits down. And you have her parents interrupting, you know, wanting to talk to like we made it It just everybody was exactly how their character should be all excited for her and then you find out you know it's not going to happen and I asked Michael this you know when she's sitting on that bench and it's not happening there's a the camera shoots over and shows her look at him and he's looking at her going what's going on kind of thing and she just goes "Mm, like no like it's not going to happen and he makes a face and I almost thought like Michael was going to get up like you know Joel was going to get up but he doesn't say anything and in that moment When she's like, they're on a commercial, they go to commercial early they're deciding what to do and she's is standing there and this is what i want to ask you about with everyone in the audience all of you guys and all of you for the first time whether personalities are so different are all on the same page you were all there to support this woman and are so excited for her and you have no idea what's really going on other than joel and they cut early for four minutes and she looks at that microphone and then looks at Susie, and it's kind of like we're gonna either be fucked like this is a horrible decision or this is gonna go well what do we do and when Susie says you know like tits up or whatever and like you know and to do it now I'm like really hysterically crying and she stands in front of the mic and does it what was really great about it was they show the audience so we see you guys but you guys fade and it gets black And it's very focused on her. So I wanted to ask you, and you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but I want to ask you, first of all, what it felt like in terms of having everyone on the same page, because although the show is funny and everyone kind of has like their things going on, I don't think there's been a single scene where all of you were on the same page. So you're all there. And then, like you said, you see, you know, Rachel do this kind of monologue, which is extremely topical for the time period we're living in right now. Yeah. And like back then it would have been super ballsy And now it's not ballsy. Now it's more like, yes. Like, I was, like, yelling out loud, like, when she was saying certain things. But you see her do this monologue. So I wanted to know for you, one, what it was like having that magic moment where you're all in sync as characters, right? Because all the characters are so different. And then the second part of the question is, when she does do that monologue over the course of the two days, how that felt to you?
1: So the first part, just just everybody being in sync, it was... I mean, I'm always there to support Joel and I'm always kind of taking his temperature to support or give my honest opinion or whatever. But this is one of the few times where, you know, I get to just laugh at his expense and know that we're close enough that it's not a big deal. And she's roasting him in front of millions of people. And finally, we can laugh about it. You know, that was this kind of magical moment, I think, in that relationship. And that's that was my takeaway and a really, you know, beautiful part of, of that friendship, even though it's, it's unspoken. It's just the tiniest of flashes because that's what a real friend did. You could offend them and both laugh it off. And only be better friends for it. The second part, Rachel is is one of the most disgustingly talented people I've ever met in my life. And it's astounding every time I get to see her work. And I didn't get to watch her work in person nearly enough on this show. And I remember I took a, a lot of pictures of her stepping off into the sides in between takes, getting ready. The main day, was like a day and a half of her doing the, that monologue. I don't know how many times she did it and how, and every time it was different and every time it was from the gut and it, it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. So behind the scenes, I kind of, and, and I'm going to send them to her as we get closer to the finale. I'm sure a million people have pictures of her, but I want to add to it. And if she wants any of them for a keepsake, good, but I'm going to post some because that was really a gift just to watch her work at that level for 12, 14, 15
0: hours. The thing that I find amazing with actors is like you guys do it hours and hours and hours, or even the one shot, you're doing four hours of rehearsal, whatever it is. But when we see it, it literally looks like you just did it once. Like you just like came out and just naturally, and that's like the skill of an actor, like that you guys have this ability to do that. And it's so impressive to make it feel like it's the first time. And anytime like you and Joel have a conversation or anytime you see, like I always like just feel bad anytime you see Archie stressing or coming up with an idea or wanting to expand the club right and oh my gosh that scene too I mean you had I was hysterical when you guys were in the church or like you're talking to nuns and you were and Archie's like freaking out that he doesn't want to be there I mean it just killed me and it's so funny but it feels like you're just doing it for the first time it doesn't feel like it's rehearsed or there's anything so when I see something like that monologue happen and it kind of gets dark or whatever and then you see everybody and you hear everybody laughing it was just such a beautiful moment for me as a viewer. So to hear how great it was for you as an actor and that we match is, I think, even more special.
1: It was that special filming. This show is, it's so many wonderful things, but at the heart of it, nothing was better than doing the work it felt like play every time it never felt like work it felt like everyone was just excited to make this better and better and better and Amy and Dan fostered that community
0: so that scene airs but we kind of see the end right of the quote future scenes and in the end really Midge's soulmate is Susie and yeah. we see the two of them talking on the phone and laughing and watching Jeopardy at the same time on VHS which is such an old school thing I was dying. <laughs> yes. yes yeah, yeah. Too. I'm not like an overly emotional person but but i literally start crying again and then i'm laughing during that scene and it ended and I, and I told this to every single person so i want your like take on it and i just went that's perfect so for you as an actor on a show that's legendary that's iconic how does it feel because i know some of you guys haven't seen it yet and like things like that to hear like i watched it i've been the whole thing and i'm not the only one of journalists that have seen it and have said it's perfect
1: when we read it i think we all agree every person in that room agreed i cannot wait to see- it. I'm jealous that, that you've seen it. I know it's perfect, and it was that way from the tip. and I can't wait
0: to see it! We don't see Archie in the future. We see all the other characters. We see where Joel is, all of that stuff. So where is Archie in the future?
1: I think that to Imogene's dismay, Archie and Joel open up less successful bar after, maybe not a nightclub, just, just like a dive bar somewhere in Hell's Kitchen after he's released from prison. I mean, I owe him my life. He went to jail to protect me as well, and I think that I owe him the world and feel beholden to that and he's my brother from another month. I see us opening another dive bar and being drinking buddies till the day we die.
0: And then I guess my final question would be, so obviously fans of the show, I mean, you know, love the show. The show like I said, will go down forever to me and I think to many as one of the best shows ever written on television and one of the best ever acted on TV. I just want to kind of end with, with all the fans that love you so much and all the fans that are going to be like me that were crying and emotional and laughing and love everything there is about Archie love everything there is about you Joel not Joel on TV but you as a person is there anything that you want to say to them that don't get the honor of talking to you like I do
1: the reason I started doing film and TV because I started in theater like so many of us and the thing that kept getting to me and I haven't stopped doing theater but the reason that I have found more fulfillment in TV and film is, as an artist, all you want to do is share. You want to share your passion, your work and everything. And been you know, all this off-Broadway theater that maybe a hundred people got to see. And then when a play is over, it's dead. Nobody can ever see it. You never get to share it beyond that. It just goes off into the ether. And the beautiful thing about TV is that you can always share it, but not. that doesn't mean people are going to watch it. When anybody watches anything that I've poured myself into, I'm blown away and grateful beyond words when the amount of people that have grabbed onto a show. Show like this watch and love and then become fans of i owe many lifetimes of gratitude and i'm, I'm just humbled beyond words so thank you a thousand times for watching this show
0: and up next is austin basis who plays alvin who's the head writer of the gordon ford show who talks about what it was like being in the writer's room working with rachel Brosnahan, and gives amazing behind the scenes stories so to talk about his experience on the final season and what it was like filming that final episode here's austin basis well, I have to bring up really quickly. I think one of the first things I saw you in, I think I saw you before Beauty and the Beast. I think you were in Grey's Anatomy. I think I saw like one episode of you in that, but Beauty and the Beast was a show on the CW that lasted a couple seasons. I interviewed Jay for like another film that he did. I love Jay. We talked about it. He loves you. He said nothing but great things about you when we talked about his film, one of the film festivals. It was at Toronto, but yeah. I miss that show. I love that show. I love JT. I just want to take a moment out to appreciate JT in Beauty and the Beast and you just such a great job with him. And I wish that show went longer. Thank oh,
2: you. I, I mean, I love JT and I, you know, could have played that for a while just because the writers kept making uh, him so dynamic as a character. I'm not just the nerd that knows everything about science and computers, but I had a love interest, I had a superpower, you know, I was heroic, you know, and the thing about JT that I feel like I miss and, you know, in my life, but also as a character, he just had more courage than I would ever have and then, it, you know, like, By playing that and kind of digging deep as an actor for that courage and to find that, it like kind of has an effect, a residual effect in your life and kind of floats you up into that area. I wouldn't say I'm as courageous as he is, but it definitely is inspirational as a character to play that.
0: Yeah, it gives you like a little boost, kind of.
2: You know, when I played JT, I was buoyant and I'm a little less buoyant now.
0: (laughs) You should still be buoyant because you have been in a million shows, including the most recent, you did Reasonable Doubt. which is like a show everyone in the world's talking about because it's like amazing and I love that all the actors are coming on and like doing it so you're in one of the episodes you're so good in that show Do you want to hear a
2: crazy story?
0: Yeah of course I I love crazy uh, stories Your
2: your little interview little scoop I was supposed to be a recurring character and the episode that they had me back was the fourth episode it was another board meeting uh, with the the partners with Emiyatsi's character Jax and I had some awesome lines in that and they were trying to to find it in the schedule they, they had to reschedule it a couple times and they finally found the day to schedule it and it was the week i got the marvelous mrs Maisel, and it was the same day i started work on the marvelous mrs mazel was supposed to be my second episode of reasonable doubt luckily it just got picked up for a second season so maybe you'll see leland again somewhere
0: oh my god that would be fantastic but oh my what are the odds of that that's crazy it's crazy okay so like let's get into it i want to get into Maisel. first want to know what it was like you're joining the cast in its final season right so what was that like because I feel like it's intimidating enough I feel like you might be semi used to it because you've done like you know one episodes like oners like on various shows where you're coming in and there's a fully established cast and you're like hey and you know but what is it like when you come in and this is like a legendary cast iconic final season and you're like hi I'm, I'm gonna be on for most of the season how does that work how do you feel comfortable how does that process work
2: I'll compare to my previous experiences because I've done some recurring roles for, you know, anywhere from two to, you know, five or six episodes in shows. And then I've also done a lot of guest stars where you come into a show for once. And to add a third thing into there, I've also been lucky enough to get cast in shows in their final season. You know, Homeland, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, some other shows that were going out and I just happened to luck out and kind of get in under the wire. And oftentimes that was the first audition I've ever had for those shows. matter how deep they were so you add those all in and you get a full season recurring role on the marvelous Mrs. Maisel in New York where I'm from hometown with the cast with the just the track record for quality that I've only hoped to be a part of I was a huge fan of the show much like other shows that I just didn't get to be a part of and now I'm here coming to New York and on set with the cast I've enjoyed so much and now I have to regard them as strangers in a world that I'm a To them, and you got to do a little more acting for that. I think you have to do a little more work on the character to really be like, you know, to not know Midge when she walks in the room. And it helped just getting to know Rachel because all these people in the room I had to get to know quick because they were guys that I worked with, you know. So, and I think I'll have to give credit to Rachel. For and Dan because he directed that first episode we were in to really treating us and making us feel at home and making us feel like we were part of the cast now that it wasn't like oh we're showing up we don't know how many episodes we didn't know at that time that it was going to be eight of the nine episodes but we just felt you know at home and Rachel was is so down to earth in addition to being as talented as she is and as award nominated and <laughs> award winning as she is that really you know she still you know comes at the work and comes at the craft and the collaboration with a full heart and a, you know, a kind of youthful spirit in the sense because, you know, all of us writers are in our 40s. Well, one of them wasn't but and she's like, you know, 10-15 years younger than us. And she's like running the show. I mean, she is the number one on the show. And she like been doing it for five or six seasons since her mid 20s. And it was just she's kind of like, you know, a unicorn in a way.
0: So talk to me about Alvin. So when we meet him, you know, it's very interesting because you're in in a, a certain time period I think where women are like severely disregarded which you know yes. kind of coming back around somehow I don't know why but they seem to be like relatively disregarded so when she walks into this room of course the writers room is all men so basically you write for the Gordon Ford show if anyone like I mean at this point everyone's seen it but you write for the Gordon Ford show you're the main writer there's yeah. a room full of men she gets kind of thrusted in there ultimately with her hope of being on the show but she gets thrusted in there to be funny and to write jokes and she's relatively disregarded for a majority Majority of the time that she spends with you guys. Yes. So what was it like developing Alvin and then rationalizing? I do find a sweetness to Alvin. I don't think he's malicious in any way, but I do think he has that mentality of the men that lived in that time period. So yeah. how do you kind of rationalize that as an actor and make that work for you, for him to be believable in what he's saying, like to kind of like knock down her jokes to, you know, what, what'd you change outfits? And like, like, just like the comments that he makes like throughout it. So how do you uh, make that work for you?
2: Well, I mean, just coming out at- the role in doing something so embedded in the period of the you know that time in new york and and that time in you know society and in a sense like modern civilization where women were you know disregarded as professionals let's just put it bluntly you know add that on top of it in comedy right think of how few women we could cite from that time period as being stand-up comedians but also you know there was like maybe a handful less than a handful of women in any writer's room anywhere. And so I think Midge be, becomes the representative of that as a fictional character that's, you know, kind of representing the one writer on uh, Sid Caesar, the one writer on, or the actual, you know, the actress <laughs> that played the writer on uh, the Dick Van Dyke show. So I was looking and kind of like trying to get a sense of, you know, who the head writer would be and who the head writer was for those shows, for the Sid Caesar show of shows, which Alvin worked on. It was this guy, Mel Tolkien. So I feel like as a younger writer, you know, looking to a head writer, that was his model, right? And then working with a guy like Carl Reiner and then at the same time, it's never really mentioned in our series, even though other shows are. Uh, You know, Carl Reiner was head writing and writing all of the episodes pretty much for the Dick Van Dyke show, in addition to being an actor on it. But, you know, Alvin had worked with those guys, but he also, like, Got this job and has had this job for a couple years of being the head writer of a late night talk show. And I thought that it was important for him to be serious about the comedy. You know that comedy is king in the room. So when, for example, a woman comes in to pitch jokes, that if she has a funny joke and if the joke is good, then that is the most important thing. You're gonna be harder on her because she has to earn her stripes. She's a rookie, a newbie. Mm-hmm. You know she needs a little hazing in the sense that. Her joke has to be really good to get in the show, you know? But the other guys are a little more upfront and, you know, kind of a little more, you know, pro-misogynistic with their hate. But um, I also am a midway or a liaison ambassador for the writer's room to the producers and Gordon. And so that to me is more important of getting the jokes, you know, from our, you know, little pitch meetings to Gordon and knowing what he likes and knowing that he hired her. So if I don't take her seriously, then that it will not show, you know, well against me. So you know, it was a combination of trying to get the balance of who Alvin is and who I am and how I connect to him. Um, you know, come from a long line of Jewish, you know, wannabe comedians and uh, you know roots in the Catskills, and so you know the connection between that, myself, and what a head writer at that time would be, and find their balance. And you know, I always kind of bring a little bit of a heart and the humanity. To the characters that, you know, even criminals or, you know, uh, you've seen murderers or people that aren't very morally or ethically sound, but they're coming from a certain place. They do whatever they do for a certain reason. And I find, you know, it more interesting to have an element of either sympathy or empathy in a character that brings out their humanity, even if they're an asshole boss that's just cracking the whip all the time. It's just more interesting to me.
0: Well, that's why I found like a sweetness to him because although he's tough on her, Like I said, I, I didn't feel a maliciousness of being tough. And then, you know, his reaction, like, you know, as everyone's kind of pitching jokes, he'll go, No, that's awful. No, no, that's all. No, that's, that's good. And then like, when she will pitch a joke, you're like, No, that's awful. It's not saying anything that he wouldn't say to one of the other guys. So that's what I found very interesting. It was exactly kind of what you said that it was the best joke in the room wins. And it's irrelevant. And he kind of, although it's a woman, and all the guys are kind of like talking and doing their thing. And he's a man of of the time I think the job is more important so like I think some of the cracks in his brain maybe don't come out towards her because he's so concerned about making sure he keeps his job and and he loves it go and he wants it to be funny and he wants it to do well
2: I, I saw him as her defender in the beginning just because his job and that's his job to do to field her jokes and see if they're funny and if they are they get in the show even when she does get a joke in the show it's not a charity I'm giving her. It's like we have like minutes to the show, we have our script thrown out and we need a joke to finish out the monologue so that Gordon doesn't, you know, have to banter for 5 minutes. And so basically if it's funny, it was, it gets in the show and it does and so it's I'm not it's more important for her than it is for me. My job is just getting the monologue filled and getting it to Gordon in a way that he proves
0: How is it filming those scenes because I feel like it's hard enough to be an actor on show, let alone they're going to throw at you Times where they're filming one camera or like one long scene. So I tell people, meaning there's one camera filming everything. It's not like multiple shots, multiple coverages, which is a typical show. Like, for example, for Beauty and the Beast, you're going to have your shot, meaning if there's a conversation between two people and there's some sort of drama happening, they're going to film a wide shot that shows the two of you having a conversation. Then they're going to yeah. show a shot of just you having your yeah. reaction, your character, then a shot of the other person and their reaction, and so on and so on. And it's big. This shows no. For like this one take, kind of one camera flying in, everybody moving out of the way, and like kind of how they film all these scenes. A show known for rapid speed. I mean, Amy and Dan are known for this for years, starting with Gilmore Girls and other projects that they had done. So you have all of that, and then on top of that, you have to be funny, and you know, and being funny. Like sometimes I tell people, like you know, because people always there's this misnomer. I think I think it's breaking a little bit, but there's this misnomer that drama is harder I don't think one's harder than the other but I do think that they're both hard and I think for some reason people think oh well comedy is just so easy and you know you just say your joke but I'm like no but there's so much to it like the timing and the way you say it and the tone and when do you come in and when do you like you know there's just so much to it so now you have to be funny on top of all of that so yeah. you get this job and you're super excited right and like you come in and it's like all like all of these things but then when you get a script and it's thrown at you and there's a million things you guys are saying in this room and you have all of these different aspects going on how did you do that because that whole process seems very daunting to me
2: well luckily the first scenes we shot were on rockefeller center that was the first things that and we got to bond and you know it wasn't intentional that we were shooting those first it just rockefeller center was closing the ice rink at a certain point in the season and so we had to do it before they melted the ice and so so you guys uh,
0: got to do the fun drunk skating first yeah
2: fun drunk skating no real lines we got like a sheet of possible lines we could say throughout the thing and you see some of those in there but for the most part, we're you know supporting the background of the celebration of the cast and crew or the the writers and the crew people on the Gordon Ford show, and that's all we knew. We were celebrating, you know, like we didn't really know what the deal was. We got seven pages of that script, and we just did it. And then we went into the first episode, first table read that we auditioned for, and the audition, to be honest, was mainly all of our scenes. So it was like five five scenes for the first audition. Then the callback was eight scenes, and so a big audition. And the eight scenes were like on a Zoom with amy and dan and so like i had to be super ready and like already kind of on the rhythm of their shows and they're, you know, and luckily I, I was a fan. So I know how people talk. I, you know, I think the episode I watched just to make sure I was at the right clip and the right pace was that episode where Susie and Midge are pitching all the different products on the radio. And cause she was, she couldn't work in any of the clubs. So there it's a very fast pace, like <laughs> almost like a jazz rhythm thing. Them going on the subway, going to this studio, going to this gig, her, you know, all the stuff that they did, that whole sequence was, you know, maybe 15 minutes of non-stop talking, fast paced, you know, rhythm music. And so I kind of got a sense of how they were gonna do it. And I knew going in, I think that probably helped me get the role. But once I was there, I also knew that I was running the room. So I had to be the one that, yo, we're going too slow. Like I knew I was gonna say, yo, we're going too slow, but I had to say, you know, I had to pick up the pace and I had to be like, come on, let's let's do this. You know and even so even with that dan and amy you know when dan was directing those episodes he would be like all right let's go a little like i think they used to say mazel it up just meaning like get it faster and get it you know punchier and so yeah like i felt when we got those directions i was the one that had to enforce that you know because i was the one uh, in charge but they, as you see in that first episode we're in there's an arc of like urgency of needing the scripts and and how it goes and so i had to to be on that pace. And the most difficult thing is to be at that pace, but be really relaxed and not, you know, super, uh, you know?
0: Yeah, because this is supposed to be normal for him. This is not normal that like last minute things get thrown out and there's an emergency and running around. So for you, you have to like keep that calm because this is normal for him, but you're like, this is not normal for me. So it's like balancing that out to make it work. Yeah,
2: balancing the pace and the energy without making it too loud or too energetic because that's, you know, like once you get it, that's the easiest thing to do if you're like, you know, running really fast and you're like, you know, heavy breathing, you could say something really fast and really excited. You know, if you're doing an episode of like Walking Dead or something, you know, you're like, life is on the line. My life is not on the line is Alvin. And you know, this, these are just jokes and it's just my job, but he takes it very seriously, but he's good at it, and he's it has been doing it for years, so, you know, those combinations lead to, and, you know, like, making choices, like, he drinks tea in the morning as opposed to coffee, like, you know, he's a little more chill than everyone else, and, except when he needs to crack the whip, and yeah, the, these little choices, I, I, I wanted the mustache, too, you know, like, I wanted the comb over, I was like, let's see if I can get away with this, and I got away with it, and, like, you know, it helps you, like, you know, make the character your own and embody it, and make the character what you connect to and part of it is my family and you know looking like all the old pictures of my family with the guys with the comb overs and the mustaches and you know in the Catskills bathing suits up to their nipples the cigars I totally or whatever know, which
0: is what's sad I totally know yeah you know <laughs> I totally know and it's so funny because I think everyone or like I think with Michael in particular we were talking about the Catskills and I was going I think it's like a Jew thing like we all just like have something about the Catskills or like something upstate we're like that's where we all went and that's where you go and you go to camp then like my parents went to camp there and it's just like I think like it's a Jewish thing I don't know I was so happy they showed it on the show but yeah it's yeah. just like that kind of energy and like you're just trying to figure out how do I make this the best that it could be and it's yeah. hard too when you're like the leader of the pack right like you're the one setting the tone for the scene you're the one moving along right you're the one going hey yeah. what's your joke what's your joke so I can understand the pressure of if they're going like mazel it up and be faster you going, okay that's up to me because yeah. I'm the one kind of leading this conversation around so I mean that's A lot to handle as an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And I think, you know, to a degree, most of the people they cast, even in the supporting roles and the recurring roles, are people that have been leads of other shows or, like, you know, have a, a track record of either being on Broadway or series regulars on other shows. And, you know, they know they're prepared and equipped to do that. And, you know, with the recurring stuff, to kind of combine and go back to what you were saying, like, you never know what the arc is sometimes with the recurring. They don't tell you ahead of time. And so there's no contract. So you don't know how many episodes in particular other than word of mouth and so all you have to do is trust in your choices as the character and trust in the writing and the writers in the lines that they give you and since we're not improvising thankfully like we're just giving we're given the lyrics as it were and there's going to be a music a musical track that they give this, this show and that it has already so you kind of know um, what song you're singing I, I think it's that trust and it, you know that only comes with really great writing and writing that has it already those comic beats and that comic rhythm so it's just a matter of trusting it and saying it and being grounded in your character and in the reality of guy in the position that Alvin was in you know doing that job
0: so it's interesting because I've asked people this and this has come up before about music so for you did you lean on music at all during this process were there songs that you listened to or certain things like that or were you more like looking at the script in a lyrical way because it seems that music seems to get infused with every like. a lot of the actors on the show would bring up music and some listened to it and that was how they kind of got yeah. into their thing and others would look at the lines and that's how they kind of brought it in their brain. So what's your musical connection to it?
2: I'm not musically gifted. Ask anyone <laughs> in my Jewish leapway camp. When I played the character that could put over a song and make people laugh but wasn't really going to hit the high notes. But I think to a degree, I feel like the musicality is more in line with how the writing is and to like, for example, like Shakespeare is something called iambic pentameter, where it's da-da, 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 da And if you talk normally, most of what we say as, you know, modern day Americans is going to sound in that same iambic pentameter. So when you're trying to make it musical, you're going against the natural rhythm of it. So when you talk about music versus dialogue, there is a musicality to the music, but it's not the normal idea of music that most people have. Like I've played some characters over the course of the pandemic in the past maybe three to five years where I was saying like, I've almost played a character in every decade of the 20th century, which is awesome. But it's also like jumping between those times. You got to figure out, like musically listening to what the music was in that era. So like I was on that show winning time and I'm like, what What songs were in 1979, you know, when this this scene takes place and to listen to like the top 10, you know, just to get an idea of like what the vibe is going to be. Um, I've listened to some classical music. I finally put in a classical music station on my car just to kind of like, I can't listen to modern music going to do something in the 1930s or 40s, you know, and I think for me, at least it was about the jokes and it was about the funny of that time period. So it was more important to understand what was funny to watch episodes of like Dick Van Dyke show to watch some Sid Caesar stuff to watch the interviews with those people like whether it was Carl Reiner or uh they interviewed the whole writers room of Sid Caesar you know for some anniversary special and I was just like I listened to it you know and it was hosted by like Billy Crystal I think but it was like you know an hour and a half long and it was just all these guys talking about you know coming up with jokes in the room they were like what was who was the funniest you know and like who was the the most annoying. And, you know, I think everyone said Mel Brooks, uh, but <laughs> and figuring out why I, why Alvin had something against Mel Brooks, you know, that type of stuff is, it was more important about the characters and the comedy and that informed the music. You know, when you tell a joke, there's a music in it. And it's not like I could describe it to you, but when I read something, I could see or feel the intention of the writer that where the joke is and where the funny is. And so it's about, you know, finding that funny and, you know, serving the intention of the writer, but also my, my job is to make it real, you know, make it seem like I'm saying it spontaneously and I'm coming up with it. And and I'm funny, naturally, not that a writer has written me jokes. And so when you play the reality and you, you, you're as kind of grounded and real as possible, the joke is secondary. And if the writing is good enough, it will all come together.
0: And I love that because you're the first one to say, to look at music in that kind of way where, you know, you're looking at it, not only script wise, and you hear something in yourself, but also to look at it in terms of the musical rhythm, it's more of like almost the, the linguistics of how people are talking. So that was like the thing that you hit on so that your brain would con- like comprehend, this is how I need to sound. And that's kind of like how you like interpret it. So I found that very interesting because, you know, some people, like you said, like will listen to certain types of music and things like that. And you did that. But it sounds like the biggest thing that helped you was the kind of cadence from, listening to other kind of comedians at the time and other writers rooms where they're giving each other like kind of shit to each other, you know, and like doing that kind of thing. And that seemed to be the thing that kind of helped you step in. Yeah, I think
2: there's a difference as an actor and just in when you listen to things where people talk differently when they're saying prepared words, you know, versus when they're, speaking spontaneously so I'd rather watch an interview with like a character I'm supposed to play versus them acting in something in those days because you could watch all those movies and people talk a certain way but they're all saying things that were on a script and they practiced and were there was a standard of how people spoke in film and TV back then you know but you listen to an interview with Lucille Ball and she doesn't sound anything like she did on on Lucy you know on the, the show and so to listen to and to watch the sketches on Sid Caesar and watch the Dick Van Dyke show which was about a writer's room and a a comedy show and then you know hear Carl Reiner in an interview or these other writers in an interview talking spontaneously even telling jokes spontaneously like you know someone told the joke and it was like funny and like you know what was the funniest joke in the room that never made the show or whatever Um, and then telling it even though it was kind of prepared it was fun to see them their humans their human being selves like speak spontaneously and be funny naturally as opposed to some prepared. Paired, you know a thousand year old man you know two thousand year old man you know
0: yeah I mean it's so cool you did such a good job with him and the writer's room was so interesting to watch and so much fun but I want to get to obviously the pivotal moment which is yes she gets a joke in which is like really exciting until the joke kind of doesn't do as well and he flubs the joke I laughed out loud when she like makes this loud sound during a live because you know anyone hit that's ever been to any live taping knows you have to be like pin quiet so when she makes this yeah. loud noise like oh you know like and everyone looks at her and I love when all of you guys all of the writers together kind of like take a step away like we didn't do it <laughs> like it's not us it was just so funny like the whole kind of relationship that all of you guys had together but what I really loved was the transition that happens over a period of time which is when ultimately you know you guys kind of sort of become friends some of the guys in the room start respecting her a little bit more because she doesn't give up she's like that annoying kind of she. she's not going to let you get one on her so she doesn't give up and she keeps fighting, and then ultimately she gets told that she's going to be on the show. And while there's a couple of jokes about like how come I've never been on the show and I should be on the show, there was a lot of support from the writers' room, and you know, so you see this huge shift over a period of time of respect for her because she is funny, and there's a, a lot for her. So when she gets that call and she goes, "You guys are all there." off camera meanwhile the entire cast and I spoke to everybody about this this was one of the first times I think ever where every single person from the show was there every actor that was acting the season is at the Gordon Ford show to watch Midge you know perform and so you guys are all there and she's you know sitting and then you find out you know it's just going to be an interview which was you know kind of Crappy, right? And then they they do a quick shot. And he goes, and then here's all, and then also to make matters worse, he goes, and here's the rest of my writer crew and like the camera shoots over to you guys, and you're like, hi, like you know, like nobody was expecting to be on camera. And then they go back to her, but then there's this moment, and I want to hear like what it was like for you because I've asked everybody this. So then there's this moment in the show, obviously it's a this pivotal moment where like Gordon takes a quick commercial that he shouldn't take, and shows are like literally timed to the minute. So now everyone's panicking, and uh, Mike's panicking, I you know trying to figure out what to. Do because we're gonna be short time and we went too early. So they're all panicking and doing all this stuff. While that's happening, there's a conversation with Midge and Susie. She basically says, like, you know, paraphrasing, but she basically looks at Susie and says, I have this idea. And she turns and looks at the mic, and we see the mic. And then she goes, you know, and she's basically saying, I can either fuck this up for us. Like, you know, Susie's starting to kind of like build her career. And so she's saying, I might fuck this up for us, or it might be like this amazing thing. What do I do? kind of thing. And you know, it was so amazing to hear Alex because it's 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 an interesting decision to make, right? And, but she's always risked it all on her. And so she says, you know, kind of like, fuck it, do it, like kind of thing. And so I'm going, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen. And then like they sit down and then Gordon's like, yeah, well, we're going to do like a longer segment and whatever. And she goes, well, I'm not very good at being told what to do. And then we come back and then she literally stands up, walks over to the mic, grabs it and does this epic monologue of all time, which is like topical to this day. And like, it would have been probably scandal back then a tad scandalous like a little edgy like a little um george carlin edgy like for a woman for what she says back then but it's so topical today and she does this fantastic monologue and i uh, because you haven't seen it yet right i don't know if you know but i gets- watched
2: it for a week straight so i know <laughs> what we're talking about <laughs> well, yeah
0: well, yes i know because they did it over and over and over everybody was talking about that when they film it and when you see it it gets really dark in the room so like you kind of see the audience you kind of see the writers you guys are all like oh my gosh like this is amazing like she's having this moment but the room gets dark almost like she's performing on stage and she's like the main focus and she does this whole set so I want to know for you I know that this was done over the course of a week I know that she did it I think two days in a row or three days in a row of constantly working on it and performing with everybody there what the magic was like for you behind the scenes because we get to see the magic of the editing and everything put together after the fact but you were there with everyone for the first time it's the last week of filming and you're all there together and you witness this epic moment in real life like what was that like for you as an actor as alvin like just as everything as a human like just standing there watching this kind of epic moment
2: yeah well i mean it was a moment like i felt like i was witnessing a moment in kind of television history i've been on shows that i love and i've enjoyed those shows still but sometimes i don't necessarily enjoy my episodes or you know sometimes it ruins it for me you know and i think i was worried that being part of this final season will would ruin the final season for me but it's actually made it that much better because not only am i excited to see the rest of the episodes like we talked about i haven't seen them i'm excited that i was a part just a small part of setting up the kind of you know uh the wheels on the plane to land this you know, this amazing show. And to kind of witness Rachel, forget about Midge, you know, Rachel do what she did in the last few days. You know, I i think I wrote some post at some point when she got nominated this past year, but to watch someone as a fan and, and an audience member in a show as a character, to watch an actress work, you know, and then make it look so easy. And then to see how the sausage is made and to see how not easy it is and on the script how many pages that monologue was and to see her do it and nail it and nuance it over and over and over. And Amy is usually, Amy Sherman Palladino is usually a person that will not settle for less than perfect, especially when we're doing those one hour shots, you know? But to see her going over and over, it was a combination of her not wanting it to end and she admitted it. She's like, I just don't want it to end. The last day of shooting was like 14 or 15 hours. I mean, it ended at like three in the morning or something. It was crazy. And, you know, that middle part of the week when, you know, Rachel was doing the stand, you know, the last stand-up bit was just a, you know, like you're trying to be in character but there is an awe-inspiring aspect of it. And especially talk about, I'll tell you a little moment, but that moment where they go around in, and the lights change, that was an actual practical light change. It wow. wasn't a special effect. You know, they may have enhanced it in, in the final product, but it's, you know, a one steady cam guy going around and around for this long-ass speech. And they shot it, and it was at the end of the day, and I don't know if they had planned because it, it's a 20 page or 25 page scene that was shot in that last week with no breakup in the scene so the challenge was how to connect all these little pieces all these little scenes with all these characters all over the set and this was the main crux of it and he did this shot and then the lights come back up and it finishes and steadicam operator has to be steady it has to be perfect it's one take if you're going to use that whole thing it's going to be just one of those takes no matter how many you shoot you can only use one because there's no break in the uh, the movement we shot it one day the next morning so rachel nailed it everyone clapped applauded blah, blah blah they had watched the dailies and both the cameraman and there was something off right And both Amy and and Jim McConkey, who's the SETICAM guy, who's awesome. They were both like, we have to do this again. And Rachel knew she was going to have to do the speech again, but was kind of, you know, concerned for like that they got it or she got it and they didn't get it. And they, you know, whenever an actor gets it and there's some mess up with the camera, the camera crew and the, you know, everyone else feels horrible because they know they have to do it again. And they're not sure that that perfect execution is going to happen again. So they did it again. And he's the guy watching. It. He's the guy filming it. And he did the take. And at the very end of the take, you know, like Amy's like, we got it. And he like knew that may have been the last steady cam shot he did for the series. And he'd been doing it since the beginning. He just broke into tears. And it was just to kind of capture in in a moment what the show was like and what the energy was like in that room that week. It was just a long goodbye and homage. It was a last hurrah for all the cast. And, you know, Amy calls him a conk, you know, so. She was like, ladies and gentlemen, Jim McCocky and he McCock. And then, you know, like then she got Ra- he got Rachel crying and she's like, I'm not supposed to cry yet. You know, like I'm going to mess up my makeup. But it was like such a sweet moment and kind of just to witness that. I, w- I felt a part of it, but also an observer because of, you know, my newness to this experience. Um, but cast and crew top to bottom were just so warm and amazing to kind of see them, you know, be rewarded by doing it, not by winning awards or anything like that you know, be rewarded by getting to spend time making something they love with the people they love. I really think that was the essence of that last week. And, you know, it'll always be a memory, you know, I'll obviously remember it, you know, for the rest of my life, you know, and I'm sure it's etched into their memories is, you know, one of the highlights of their career and their time on the show.
0: For that scene in particular, I wanted to bring it up and I brought it up with everybody because it's one thing as a viewer to watch it and I go, oh my gosh, this is an iconic moment and that moment sparks and you know I've been telling everyone then you can literally look at that moment and kind of go backwards and you know kind of restart and see where all that future stuff that we had seen really all sparked from that moment so like as a viewer you're like oh my gosh this is so iconic but as a person on set it's a different feeling and like and it was interesting to hear that everybody had like their own personal moment during those final seven days of not only watching her do it but also just being there to Together And just living those last seven days together, which is yeah. like emotional, you know? And so it, it was just interesting to hear. So it's like you got like the best of both. It was like you got to be on it, you got to stand and watch it, like on the sidelines and like see it happen. And then yeah. you're going to see it air because you haven't seen it, but you'll get to see the episode. And it's really good. And it's just like amazing that you'll have forever, like that moment. So that's why I'm always so interested. So i I'm like, what was it like? You know, if it was that monumental and that touching to me. And there were moments yeah. of things that she said that really hit home for me. I don't know what that would have felt like standing there like just seeing it. So it's just cool to hear your experience of what it was like you know just being there. Yeah
2: and I think you know as kind of an extra part of that scene not an extra or background but it's like we're supporting making that scene what it turns out to be you know. Everyone being there is adding to the energy that an audience watching it feels when they watch it but to be in that position as Rachel was to be ending the show that launched her amazing career that will continue and have to do five or six I don't know I think it was like a six page monologue you know is daunting it's just like you know to be there and not really have any lines and just have to try to stay in character there's one challenge with that of not letting the awe of the moment as an actor being part of this thing you know not sweep you away from what the character supposed to be experiencing, but to try to use it in a sense, which I think Amy and Dan did a good job of because it is the culmination of all these things in the series and the culmination of this season, you know, for all the characters that were there and even us to see someone, even a woman, break the rules and kill on a show was, at least for my character, it was, I could use the awe that I was experiencing as Austin to be proud as Alvin of someone that... that is a young comedian finding their big break right in front of me even if it was breaking the rules because at a certain point we didn't care about that it was that this is comic gold and we're we're getting to watch it and as Alvin specifically you know maybe I don't know how the other writers felt but as Alvin specifically because I was the head writer being part of cultivating that and, and being proud of someone you know that I'm like a bird that's now flying high you know that's out of the nest and now you know soaring over the, in the sky or in the clouds you know and so that was a dual experience. And again, to give credit to Rachel to do that, sustain that energy and that emotion and that intention for three days, the better part of three days and do it for the other reverse angles, as well, you know, she's not f- being filmed the whole time, all the other scenes are watching her. You got to go through the audience and get everyone to respond, and you know, to have an audience and background there the whole week, just sitting in the audience and genuinely cheering. Like, you know, I saw, su- you know, in ADR, I saw some clips and I'm like, it- of that very last moment, thank you and good night. And I'm like, I don't think that's as loud as people were. I- it was louder in the room. I think they had to tone it down because you know, I think people were like, juiced and adrenaline flowing with the energy and then those last takes where she you know the actual last takes of the week I don't know if people told you but were when she gets invited to the couch and she sits and they do that stuff and the last applause where they kind of go around everyone's in their you know like street clothes you know even the background the only two people that are still kind of dressed are Reed and Rachel and everyone kind of clapping and applauding and you know I'm wearing like a sweater or something and they're still acting you know we're done with our jobs you know like like they're still acting And they're still like You know Closing out this great show It's It was so many things But you know It was definitely A, a memory that Will definitely last Until the next great memory
0: I'm so jealous of you I have two really quick questions I want to okay. ask First of all When you mentioned the couch I was just going to say That was such a big moment When I was watching it And then when Gordon goes And I had asked Reed about that About him accepting her Finally and kind of Going like this And bring her to the couch Because all comedians know When you got to the couch Like on Letterman or something That was like you made it. That he wanted to sit and talk with you, so like I, I just love that whole scene. I love all of that stuff together. But then we were talking about this, which was basically after this pivotal moment, and you know we had seen all these flash forwards, and she's kind of distant with her family, her kids. You know, obviously her and Joel are still close because Joel did a lot of things for her and kind of went to prison for her basically. But what I found the most interesting, basically the fact that we see her at the very end alone. You know, I compared her as well to like a, a Lucille Ball situation where she's this huge legend, she's so well known, and it, shows the sacrifice that she gave because she's alone I mean like she's in a mansion walking around alone and yeah. ultimately what ends up being kind of her soulmate because she even jokes when we see her in the future or like current day whatever you want to call it older she had made jokes about like being married multiple times and like you know all of those things so she's single alone yeah. in this huge house but her soulmate is Susie because that very last scene is the two of them putting in a VHS of Jeopardy so that they would both watch at the same time and the two of them using good old-fashioned phones not the cell phones that they have that are available good old-fashioned landline both on speaker cursing how you would see them like 40 years earlier making fun of each other and laughing and so I ended with laughing and crying and like the credits came on and I just went that was perfect so for you I wanted to ask you you brought up like a good point where you were saying about her monologue that a lot of the stuff that she says in the monologue is sort of what became her brand and kind of how she ended up it's what she seemed to want so I don't think she's unhappy. Be that she's alone necessarily, um, and that her schedule so booked, and like you know, and her life kind of soul, like you know, partner is Susie. I think that's what she was looking to do. But you brought such an interesting parallel, so I want to bring it up really quick about the monologue and the fact that she kind of makes jokes about her kids and things like that. So, why do you think that monologue, why do you think they peppered that in there to make that correlation between like what she says during that monologue about like forgetting her kids' names and being a bad mother and all those things, and her ultimately kind of becoming that?
2: I don't know from the beginning, but what I've heard, and this seems to be true from all around, when Amy and Dan pitched the show, they pitched that last scene as well.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. As the
2: way it was going to end, right? And it was about a love story between this comedian and her manager and two women um, not competing against each other and supporting each other even when the world was against them. And to a degree, like when you were saying the her soulmate was Susie, I would venture to also include comedy and jokes and the audience and the laughter as a dual like soulmate, like without that, that relationship doesn't happen. And when she had nothing else in the middle of the season, that was all she had was the jokes and the gigs and the, you know, she dove into her work. And I don't know necessarily, you know, that to succeed at that level, you have to sacrifice your family and kids and everything. But in this story, in this arc, in this time period, I think like a woman like Midge Maisel had to do that because that was the only way that a woman like that in that time could do what she did, what she did, not what every woman did. You could work a nine to five job and make a lot of money for your family and then come home and cook dinner, like kind of satisfy both worlds and stereotype of what women were supposed to be doing then. But I feel like almost like it's a fictitious character, but it's a forerunner of you needed women like that, that were willing to sacrifice their families in a sense of like not having the mother daughter, mother son relationship or a husband to do something like that and and kind of pave the way for other women to be able to have their families and have a, a life and also a career at the same time. I think a lot of what the series is, is women blocking the system and, you know, breaking the stereotypes, but also depending on each other and not fighting each other to get to the top. That was part of, I think, what Amy and Dan seem to be telling here, like the story and the moral of the story of, you know, two women could to work together to be that successful. You know, they don't have to, one you know, doesn't have to be less or more successful than the other and take a, a back seat. And they could love each other and be friends and depend on each other in the same way a married couple would. So she got what she needed, out of, what she would have had out of her family in Susie and vice versa. And Susie specifically with her arc, you know, there's a whole mess of things that she she had to hide and deal with to not, be miserable to be less miserable because susie is pretty miserable most of the time but it's like you know to be less miserable or like you know perfectly miserable also even you know maybe she had you know i think the next episode is called susan the one that hasn't aired yet uh which is really funny when every time petty said susan it was like oh my god i'm like it's just so funny that we all known her as susie this whole time and as a fan of the show this woman knows her as susan oh but Just that arc of, you know, Susie's character is, you know, she never had a family. She had this ambition, right? And this, these kind of past hidden relationships that she couldn't consummate in in that day and age in a way that would have made her happy. Who knows if she's had any future relationships in that course of time, but the main, like most important relationship she's ever had in her life, and both of them were with each other. And I think that sums up, you know, what the series is and what, you know, that message is. And I feel like that's what people love about the series is their dynamic together. And to see that as the series winds down and fades to black, that these two are still happy and in love and supporting each other, even thousands of miles away.
0: So I want to end with a two-part question, okay. which is one, we don't see you in the future. So I want to know where Alvin is in the future, where you think he would be. And then the second mm-hmm. part of the question is basically, you know, what is your takeaway Way of working on the show. And is there anything that you want to say to fans that are just obsessed with the show? And they're, I mean, I've already like loved the whole writer's room and everything going on. Well,
2: I think, you know, to start with, uh, I think Alvin is, you know, he has a wife, but he's married to his job. He didn't smoke. He didn't like, you know, he had one drink at the end of every show. Uh, maybe that one night he got a little crazy on Rockefeller Center. But for the most part, he's the, you know, he's the responsible adult. That takes comedy seriously And with the success of the show He would evolve into a producer And you know, who knows Maybe he he did work for Johnny Carson When Johnny Carson Because it was like the overlap Of when Johnny Carson started Doing yeah. The Tonight Show And started in Late Night So I do feel like he'd be doing the same thing He may have, you know Kind of been a head writer on a sketch show Similar to your show of shows The Sid C- Caesar thing And what's really funny is like We always joked But I'm not joking You've talked about how a lot of these issues are issues we're dealing with today. And yeah. I think the parallel of what the writers in Gordon Ford's writer's room talk about and joke about and, and, you know, like the, you know, we talk topical, you know, not topical. That stuff that we talk about in the 60s, such a changing time, is appropriate now. And it's it's almost like a, sat- it could, almost could be a spinoff, could almost be a satire of it now, like kind of Mad Men meets, you know, The Marvelous Miss Maisel, where you have these guys dealing with their lives. You introduce other characters, Into the writer's room now that Midge is gone. I think there's a way in my world that he may have stayed at the Gordon Ford show because it's their number one. And, you know, I I think there's a story to be told about the writers, their lives off camera, I mean, off outside the office, but also of them trying to come up with a monologue every night based on what's happening in the world and a lot of similar things that we've dealt with in our generations and are unfortunately having to deal with now with the cycling back of rights of every community of color, LGBTQ, women. Like to me, you know, not that I would wish that on our society. I want us to go back to evolving to normal human beings, but uh, the way governments and, you know, laws are being made, it's not really happening like that. And I feel like a a comedy show and a show about this stuff cycling through that we're dealing with the same stuff we were dealing with in the 60s and 70s could be an important kind of, you know, reflection of how far we haven't come. Well, in case you haven't noticed from the previous answer, that first question about what Alvin's doing now is like, I want to still be doing. I still want to play Alvin. I feel like we've only scratched the surface, even of the other writers, you know? I don't know. It's such a a goldmine of issues and also just storylines that i would like to see yeah like i leaving the show and and being part of the show was just you know so far a highlight of my career if not the highlight and to be part of a show that i I love so much is you know kind of goes into my message to the fans is like i hope you enjoy the season as much as i think you will but also as much as the work i know that went into it and it's just such an epic season of television and the ambition alone that Amy and Dan set out with is, I think, worthy of recognition unto itself. But the fact that they're actually executing it so far and and through the end and they're actually succeeding at what they set out to do, um, I think is, I'm just honored to be a part of that and also to be the part that I was. My time with this role felt like my career of seeing opportunities, seizing those opportunities. And, you know, because I didn't get the audition I didn't get submitted on this. I submitted myself because I helped someone audition in, you know, the New York area. And I was like reading the other roles. I was reading Alvin. And I'm like, this is like me doing Neil Simon in college. I feel like this is natural. This is like, I grew up close to Brighton Beach in New York. I did Brighton Beach memoirs. Me doing, you know, Maisel and doing Alvin is almost like me playing Stan in Brighton Beach when I was a junior in college and feeling like this is my path. And it turned out to work out in my favor you know little luck little little magic there and i just wanted to make the most of it and i i hope i did and i just look forward to enjoying the season with the fans but as much as the fans would because i am a fan and you know to see the stuff i didn't film like that's as exciting as being a part of it like i know what happens i just want to see Susie and abe and you know uh rose and and shirley and and you know moish and joel like i want to see all that stuff happen i can't wait for this week's episode with you know, the musical stuff because they did that at the table read. They sang all those songs at the table read. It was so much fun. It's just going to be hard to a hard thing to match up to. You know, I did a show early on in my you know career in LA called Life Unexpected where we're all still friends now. We all still support each other between baby showers and weddings and just, you know, good times and bad. I don't know that I'm going to be best friends with it. it's such a big cast, but I know I'm going to stay in touch with a lot of these people. But the experience unto itself was a enough to be like you know something that's even in one season I know everyone on the show that has been there from the beginning has said it's unmatched and they like I know Alex is like I don't know how I'm gonna ever do anything like this ever again but I think that's good because you know shouldn't always have that it it would be great if you did but it just makes the moments you get to experience like this a little more special when it's not always like this you know sometimes it's just a job but uh, when you get to enjoy it and, and make the connections and meet all the people that I've met and work with in front of and behind the camera. I feel very honored and privileged to be a part of it and to watch it with everyone else.
0: Hope you guys enjoyed listening to Austin and Joel talk about what it was like on their last week of filming, what it was like filming season 5 and of course their overall experience and how much we're really all going to miss the family and the love of The Marvelous Miss Maisel. The Marvelous Miss Maisel returns to Prime Video on Friday April 14th with three episode premiere. New episodes will air weekly on Fridays until the series finale on may 26 so make sure you catch all of the episodes as they're airing and don't miss that finale trust me on may 26 don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you're updated on all of our latest podcasts and head over to our youtube channel hit subscribe so you're updated on all of our video content